You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. I'm so glad to have you here, and thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. I'm very excited to bring you tonight's discussion as we are approaching the time of year when we remember the birth of our Savior. I thought it would be a good time to reflect on the strategic timing of Jesus' birth. Uh, there is a phrase in Galatians 4.4 that says, Jesus came at the fullness of time. And I love this. And now the context here is Paul uh, talking about how Jesus came under the law and he was born under the law uh, to set us free and to make us sons of God. But I just love verse four. It says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might redeem, receive adoption to sonship. And that phrase there, that just that short little expression I love it because it summarizes the idea that Jesus arrived right on time at the strategic moment in human history. And as we're going to explore tonight, there's a lot of things to look at and reflect on that this was actually a strategic moment for the spread of early Christianity itself. We're going to be looking at several reasons that uh, Christianity did spread so quickly and God's providential timing in sending Jesus at just the right time for that to happen. Let's get into it here. My guest tonight is a theologian and philosopher, Kenneth Samples. Ken is uh, definitely my favorite uh, living theologian. And to be honest, I'm quickly getting to the point where um, I'm only recommending mostly dead theologians these days. But Ken is an amazing uh, resource super solid, consistently careful in his work. I'm always glad to be able to commend his work to others. He has developed an amazing body of research over four decades of working in theology and apologetics. Super honored that he came is coming back on the show. So let's bring Ken on. Hello, Krista. Hey, Ken. Glad to have you here. Good to be with you. Thank you. And for those uh, that may not be familiar, maybe they missed our first conversation from a couple of months ago. Uh, maybe you could just briefly tell us about, you know, what kind of research you do and and what topics you often write about in your work. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've been working at Reasons to Believe. This is my 25th year. Prior to that, I, I worked uh, at the Christian Research Institute with Walter Martin. In those days, I studied new religious movements and cults. My time at Reasons to Believe is I work with the scholar team, and, and Reasons, of course, focuses primarily on science faith issues. So I bring uh, theological and kind of philosophical perspectives that relate. I talk a lot about the Christian worldview. I talk a lot about the great truths of, of historic Christianity, the Trinity, the Incarnation, which is what we celebrate during the Advent season at Christmas time. And I 
try to show that these great truths are uh, are reasonable and uh, they they conform to reality. And so uh, those are some of the things I do here at RTV. I think it's you're such a gift to Christ's body because you bring um, theology to regular people. Um, you are the person who is really taught me more than anybody else how to write and think in a responsible way so that academics will read it and say, like, I'm being fair, but that regular people can get impacted by the work. And really what you have accomplished um, is is amazing. And I want to commend your work to all of my listeners that if you're wanting some on ramps into conversations about the Christian worldview to go check out uh, Ken's books. Um, he's written a lot. We're going to be highlighting a chapter from your latest book tonight, uh, Christianity Cross Examined. We're going to be looking at one of those chapters tonight. And but I want to commend the whole book to everybody. Uh, came out earlier this year. Maybe you could tell us really briefly, like, what is this book about, and and why did you write it? Yeah, well, well, thank you for all those kind remarks, Krista. Um, I think what's unique about this book, what I what I've come to appreciate about this book, is that uh, many years ago people asked me a lot of truth questions, and I've noticed in the last decade or so that the questions people are interested in now seem to be questions about Christianity's goodness. So what I did is I. I look at six questions or challenges uh, in the first part of the book that relate to Christianity's truth claims. So I look at science, I look at philosophy, logic, history. The second part of the book, I look at questions about Christianity's goodness. What about slavery? Has Christianity been good for racial minorities? What about some of the commands in the Old Testament to, uh, to Joshua, for example? Uh, to to lead to the conquest of the Canaanites. So I'm hoping that what this book will do is to help people today who have both truth questions, but also ask questions about the relevance and the goodness of our faith. Very good. And we're going to be looking at a chapter tonight and talking about um, the spread of early Christianity and thinking about um, as we're going into the Christmas season, some th- some things that factor into the strategic timing of Jesus' birth. And I think a, a good place to start is to maybe for us to briefly reflect on how a religion that started with 120 people in a room on the far side of the Roman Empire, uh, as we see described in Acts chapter 1, uh, how did that blossom into a major world religion within such a very short period of time. And a couple of words that came to my mind that I thought it would be good for us to get some grounding here is, you know, what does the Bible teach us about God's sovereignty in history? And, And maybe we should start with what does that term sovereignty, God's sovereignty even mean? Yeah, these are very important, particularly for Jews and Christians. Uh, Christianity builds upon Judaism. Christians affirm the Old Testament as the Word of God. God is the creator of all things. He sustains all things, and he directs all things. And that applies to more than just the natural world. 
It also applies to societies and governments and institutions and, and people. Here's a passage in Psalm 22, verse 28. Dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And you see this as well in the preaching of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, where he talks about uh, all people find their meaning and purpose in the Lord, and he is also the one that directs the nations. And so two very critical doctrines are the sovereignty of God. He is a king. He is a ruler. But also this idea of providence, that God is guiding the direction of history. And uh, when Christianity began to influence, Christians began to reflect and think, wow, this is the exact time for the coming of the Messiah. It was anticipated for a long time. But in looking back, I mean, you're exactly right, Krista. A third of the way through the first century, you've got Jesus and 12 disciples. Then there is the emergence of the Christian church, and you have maybe a little more than 100. By the end of the first century, uh, Christianity had was known about in the Roman Empire. By the fourth century, it was the dominant religion of the empire. Uh, and today... It's one-third of the world population, about 2.2 billion people, claim in one way or another to be a follower of Jesus. And I think that it's really important to orient ourselves to this idea of God's sovereignty. I'm glad you brought up the word providence in history, because sometimes when we, when we look at the happenings in the world, and even if in our own time, we as Christians, as part of our worldview, must stay oriented to the biblical reality that God puts kings on thrones and he removes them. Yes. And so that at that time when the Roman emperors were ruling and the empire was growing, um, we have to also remember that God's purposes and plan go forward. God is not caught off guard by human wickedness or the wickedness of kings and yet somehow he he works all of these things in for his own plans and purposes and i think it's important for us to to reflect on that a little bit that this is the the doctrine of of the the providence of god that his plans and purposes move forward um and in human history exactly i mean jews and christians both talk about the idea that God is the God of history, um, that he directs and guides history. And you can, you can recognize, Krista, how important and how comforting, how encouraging it is to know that God is in control. And you may have Nero on the throne, one of the most evil emperors. And yet Paul says that we are to obey the government only to disobey when, when uh, things are told to us that are against God's word. But you have the idea that there is an arc of history. Martin Luther King, great civil rights leader in the 1960s, said that the, the arc of history tends toward justice. So there is a teleology, there is a design, a historical perspective. Often we think of the sovereignty in creation events, but we, they also include God's providence. That's really good. And as we're thinking about, you know, some of these features of the Roman Empire, that's that's a good kind of segue into some of these first points that we want to talk about, because 
there were features of the Roman Empire itself that helped to facilitate the rapid spread of Christianity. And um, let's let's talk about some of those because I remember the very first time I heard you give this talk, I was so struck by these observations. And it was probably 20 years ago, and, and it stuck with me all this time. That's why I wanted to do this this podcast, because um, I want people to, to, to begin to see God's hand in, in history. So what are some of those features of, of the ancient Roman world that played a role in, in our faith spread? Yeah, the first couple I would call social factors. And it's important to realize that these may seem like just merely uh, social events that happen in the world. They, they seem uh, kind of a natural process of society and culture and government and things of that nature. But God has his hand. And so while some of these can seem like normal everyday events, God is using them and orchestrating them. The first one I talk about, I think, is really a remarkable one. It has to do with what the Romans called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. It was about a 200-year period. Uh, I date it, uh, for example, um, if I can see my date here. Uh, well, it's it's right at the right at the end of. Uh, right before Jesus is coming into the world, and here's the date, 27 B.C. to about 180 A.D. So B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, Latin, upon the coming of the Lord, in the, in the time of the Lord. So everything from a Western standpoint is dated either before Jesus or after him. Well, during that period, Krista, the Roman army had dominated the the Roman Empire, and there was a peace. Uh, there was not war. There was not strife. And so this was an opportunity uh, for Christianity to grow and to develop. The message could be taken throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, think about living in Afghanistan or Syria today. These are war-torn countries you would have information blackout. You'd have all kinds of things that would stand in the way of good communication. And so this period where the Romans dominated the world, it, it may sound like, wow, there is this, this uh, world, world power that's controlling things. But God used that world power to allow the Christian message to go forward. So this is the time between what is called the two great Caesars or the two good Caesars, uh, Caesar Augustus and Marcus Aurelius. Jesus is born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And by the way, St. Augustine, my favorite Christian thinker outside the New Testament, he's named after both Caesar Augustus and Marcus Aurelius. Very good. I love that. And I have a little map here that I want to show people just to give people kind of a scope of the Roman Empire. And and so when we're talking about this period of of peace, we're thinking about a pretty good chunk of the Mediterranean world, a, a good chunk of Europe, modern day Turkey, down into North Africa and by having the, the, the Roman expansion, um, something that, you know, is extremely human uh, and in that government, but having that peacetime 
what did allow for a rapid expansion of the gospel. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, something good to observe. And I remember uh, a church that I attended some years ago in the, in the every week in the pastoral prayer, the pastor would, would ask God for continued peace in our country and in our time so that the gospel can go forward. I think it's it's often something that we have taken for granted as American Christians. Um, but now we're living in times when we see things like the recent events in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, where like, you know, we can't take that for granted. This peacetime is a privilege. It's, it's not the norm. And so th- thinking about it from that perspective, I think is just, extremely provocative to reflect on God's sovereignty in that way. A, a unique element, again, God controlling the world and, and allowing this uh, Roman Empire and their great army, they were one of the great armies in the history of the world, and that led to this, this time of peace, again called the Pax Romana. Very good. All right, well, what's another kind of social feature that that we might reflect on during this time. Yeah, this is a very practical one. The, the The Romans were advanced technologically. They invented concrete, and they built roads that were. It's estimated that they created fifty thousand miles of roads. It would it would extend, for example, from from Britain all the way to Spain. Uh, and roads would even go down into North Africa. Now, the purpose of this for the Roman Empire was to allow the Roman armies to move all over, to protect the empire, uh, to strike easily. And so they were thinking technologically. But the interesting thing is that when Christianity comes about, the missionaries begin to use this ease in travel. They're able to communicate. They're able to again, present the message. There's no war, and they have lots of easy travel. They can communicate. This facilitated the message uh, going around around the world. Remember, in the ancient world, you don't have any, you, you don't have uh, the internet. You don't have uh, Xerox copies that you can spread around. It took time for the message to get from one place to the other. But th- this practical technology produced by the Romans helped the cr- Christians spread their message. Very good. And uh, Bob put up briefly a picture there of some Roman yeah. roads. You can go all over um, you know, the Mediterranean area and see the remains of many of these features of ancient Rome. You can see aqueducts. You can see bridges that they built. It really is remarkable how much has endured to this day in an amazing feature of their technology and, and their know-how. So it's, it's good to reflect on, oh, yeah, I never really thought about that, that those roads would have been used for redemptive purposes of getting the gospel message out. So when we think about Paul and his companions uh, or Barnabas out, preaching the gospel, they were probably utilizing these same roads and uh, would be much easier to, to facilitate travel. So that's, that's really helpful. Um, so I'm thinking that as we're the, the Pax Romana and these roads, 
they almost go hand in hand with each other. You, you know, that they're, they're really, um, I can see them kind of interlocking, you know, that, right. that both are important. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, what else we might reflect on from a social perspective. Yeah, th this ties in very nicely, not only to the peace of Rome, but also the ease and travel of the roads, but the language. Uh, you know, there are lots of different languages in the world. How do you communicate the message of Christianity if each and every person has a different language? Well, uh, in the ancient world, there were two languages. The language in, in Rome was Latin. Uh, but there was also the Greek language. And what's interesting is the language of trade was called Koine Greek. Th this is a, a common Greek, a simple Greek. It is the language the New Testament is written in. So imagine uh, in the world today, probably the, the universal language today is English, but at that time it was Koine Greek. What a remarkable thing that the New Testament would have been written in the common language of the people. That allowed it to spread. It allowed to communicate. So you can see that the, the Romans had a lot of ideas, but God co-opted those ideas and utilized them to spread the gospel. Yeah, I think that this idea of common language is so important because as Rome was progressing and conquering, they were bringing with them the Greek language, kind of building on the civilization of the Greeks. Yeah. But the fact that, that the whole Roman Empire was at least conversant in the same language, and they would probably have their own uh, regional languages too. Like in, sure. in Israel, we would see uh, Jesus speaking Aramaic. Uh, but the the thought that you know that there was a common language that you had to be able to at least have enough mastery in to read or to engage in trade and that this becomes then the foundation of the church and and i mean what a strategic moment that is and um maybe we could talk a little bit more about was there anything in particular about Koine Greek that made it accessible or why did the, the Christians use that rather than Latin? I'm just wondering if you have any more insights about the language component. Yeah. So, so you, you have these two very significant languages, Latin and Greek. Uh, Greek, of course, also you have classical Greek, which is much more scholarly and intellectual used by people like Plato and Aristotle uh, and you would have, again, Latin would, could be used by, by various scholars, Cicero, etc. Koine Greek is the language of the people. It's a common language. It, it is a, a language that is used to communicate information, to trade in goods. And so exactly as you said, in Israel, there, there may be Hebrew, they may speak Hebrew, they may speak Aramaic. But in Israel's connection with the outer world, it would be Koine Greek. Th this is a simple Greek. Um, I remember studying Greek for the first time. We started in 1 John. By the time I got to Hebrews, I thought, wow, the, the vocabulary in Hebrews is a lot stiffer than the vocabulary in 1 John. But 
And again, it illustrates that this was a language that was utilized to bring people together to communicate information. So the Roman Empire had a purpose. They had a purpose for their army. They had a purpose for their roads. They had a purpose for their language. But all of those uh, worked well for the advancement of, and proclamation of the Christian message. Very good. And once again, we're talking about one of the chapters from Ken's uh, newest book, Christianity Cross-Examined. And I want to commend people to that book if they want to um, look into this topic and also some other very good topics. You can browse in that there on Amazon and see the table of contents. And if you're interested in this particular topic, also this is an older blog series that Ken uh, wrote a while back over at the reasons.org website. We've been talking about part one of that blog series, uh, 10 reasons for the rapid spread of Christianity. We're talking about social factors right now, but it's a three-part series there available at reasons.org. It would make a wonderful uh, series to read over maybe in your homeschool group and discuss uh, with your teenagers at, at your family devotions. It's very accessible and um, provocative in thinking about these topics. Let's move into, uh, we talked about social factors. Let's talk a little bit about cultural factors that played a role in the rapid spread of Christianity. Um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, we notice about Christians, even as early as Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, is this amazing ethos of, of charity, um, you know, the classic passage in Acts chapter two there where it says that they held all things in common and they were selling property for each other. But maybe, you know, we should talk about that as as one of these these cultural factors that really made Christianity seem very appealing. Yeah, and I, I would tie together the idea there of human dignity and humanitarian aid or charity. And what I mean by that is remember that in the Roman world, um, there was lots of slavery. In the Roman world, uh, women had very few rights at all. Children had almost no rights. Uh, it was a male-dominated society, and the Romans were at the top of the heap, and everybody was underneath them. Also, Krista, there was no safety net. Uh, people, th there was not only a lot of slavery, but there was also a lot of economic crisis in the ancient world. There were also pestilence. I mean, we, we think of the COVID-19. Uh, they had similar issues. What Christians did is they said, look, all people are made in the image of God. All people have inherent dignity and moral worth, regardless of uh, their color and things like that. We'll look at that in a little bit later. But they began to share the things that they had in common. They they built uh, alms places where people could could get food. They built hospitals. Uh, in in fact, hospice is is a Christian invention. People suffered lots of diseases. Maybe they couldn't cure them, but they could care for them. And so this idea that people at who are low on the economic pole, the socioeconomic pole, need to be cared for, that's a deeply Christian idea. It, it wasn't something that emerged from classical Greek or Roman thought. It was a Christian idea. 
And I think people are very much attracted now and then by the idea that Christians lived as if people mattered, uh, that children, that women, that elderly, uh, they need food, they need a place to live. And so this, this was very attractive uh, to people who uh, thought to themselves, wow, these Christians, they love one another, they, they sacrifice for each other, they share their food, not just with other Christians, with, with non-Christians as well. And this was a real draw. This got people's attention in, in the ancient world. Yeah, it was the Christians who would often even rescue orphans um, right. and, and people that uh, others wanted to toss away. Uh, yeah. It was the Christians who saw dignity in these people, and that was directly tied to this idea of the image of God. And I, I don't want this observation to pass us by too quickly because— you know, not every culture shares this ethos right. of of dignity, value, and worth, and uh, kindness towards strangers and even enemies. And you know, I think we should. I, I want us to reflect on this for this just to, for a minute because um, there's a broader ethical principle here that I think makes Christianity unique among other moral philosophies, both both in the past and very much as it's playing out right now in the present. We, we, we can't take this ethical perspective for granted because it is not shared by everyone. Yeah, I think of a quote by Houston Smith, the great uh, scholar of world religions. He said, he said the gods uh, of uh, Olympus, you know, they were interested in seducing the beautiful women but Yahweh, he was interested in the orphans, the widows, the immigrants at the gate. Uh, in Hindu philosophy, you have the caste system, and people are placed at various uh, stations in life, and there isn't necessarily aid that goes from the top to the bottom. Certainly Greeks and Romans didn't think that. I mean, Aristotle, with all of Aristotle's wisdom and one of the great thinkers in history, uh, he saw women as inferior to men. Uh, he saw the, the non-Greeks as being barbarians. This, this idea that we have an obligation to care for people, that, that God has a heart for the, the individuals who are at the, at the bottom of the barrel, uh, I think that that's a very powerful incentive. I remember when I was a kid, I would see trucks go through the neighborhood Salvation Army, St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, I remember seeing all of these Catholic charities uh, committed to the idea of, of helping and, and uh, extending aid to people. Why? Because they have dignity. They're made in the image of God. God loves them. We should love them as well. And so I'm imagining that that made Christianity very attractive to People in the ancient world, because there were many affiliations that you could have. There were many kinds of organizations and groups that people could affiliate with. There were many alternative religions to choose from. Right. And yet, here's Christianity, um, you know, coming along and saying, we're going to care for the sick. We're going to care for the poor that would have really stood out as being 
quite different than yep. what was happening in other places. So yep. you have different, you have a different motivation. You have a different result. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what's another cultural factor that, that, played a role in in the rapid spread of Christianity. Yeah, this is one that's very relevant to us today, that uh, Christianity really promoted what I would call a countercultural freedom from class distinctions. I mean, I mean, today in the ancient world, people would talk about truth, goodness, and beauty. Today we talk about race, gender, and class. But if you go to Galatians 3.28, uh, Paul makes an utterly revolutionary statement that in the Christian church, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male or female, all are one in Christ. Now, let me echo some sentiment here. Uh, you know, for the Romans and the Greeks, they thought men were, were superior to women. They thought they were superior to other races of people. But even within Judaism, there are reports that a Jewish man would wake up in the morning and say, uh, Lord, I thank you that I'm, I'm not a... I'm not a Gentile. I thank you that I'm not uh, a slave. I thank you that I'm not a woman. Well, you know, when you look at Jesus, Jesus treats people uh, like the Samaritan woman. He, Jesus treats women very, very differently than the Greco-Roman Empire did. And the idea, no difference between Jew and Gentile, are, that's one of the great clashes no difference between male and female. Slave or free, a person could be a slave, but he would be a free man. Another person would be a free man, but he would become a slave to Christ. I think that the things lots of people are talking about today when it comes to race, gender, and class, Christianity addressed powerfully in the ancient world. And again, uh, some have speculated uh, that Maybe 90% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And the two largest people groups, Krista, that initially came to Christianity were women and slaves. I think it's clear they heard a revolutionary message. They saw something in the Messiah Jesus. They saw something in the emerging Christian church that stood out. Because, again, the Greeks and the Romans, they separated people based upon issues of uh, sex, issues of uh, class. Uh, Christianity said all people are made in the image of God. And I think that that's just a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable idea. Christianity even moves above Judaism in affirming the application of the Imago Dei. Yeah, I think that as I've reflected very deeply on on those verses I think a couple of things that I've thought about is imagining in my mind in a, in a local church setting that you might have um, a fisherman, sort of more of a middle-class person sitting next to a slave, sitting next to a slave owner, sitting next to a tax collector, sitting next to a Roman soldier. I mean, and all of these people are, are sitting there in a local church together and what is it that unites them it's it's this idea of family and, and that in Christ what i think what paul is getting at there in galatians and also in colossians where he he uses similar wording is that 
there's something transcendent that happens in the spirit realm that brings us together as family. It transcends our earthly station. And, you know, when I became a Christian and I woke up the next day, nothing really changed about my earthly station. In the ancient world, the slave came to know Christ and they woke up the next day and they were still a slave. Um, So their earthly station might not change. A woman is still a woman. A barbarian is still a barbarian. A free man is still a free man. But what does change is what happens in the spirit realm, that there's something that happens to us that unites us in this supernatural way so that you and I are now brother and sister and that we see each other through that lens first that I no longer, when I, when I know you're a Christian, I no longer see you first as the role that you play in society as a man, you still are a man. Nothing has changed about that, but that I see you first now as a brother. And I think that that is revolutionary, that new relationships could then emerge um, as a result of that spiritual reality. Then something new could be brought forth in the physical reality of a different kind of relationship. And it truly, like you said, it would be revolutionary uh, for people. And, And I think that as we reflect deeply on that. It's what I started to call our salvation identity. Um, Our creation identity I see as being created in the image of God. That's something that applies to all humans. But what we're talking about here is our salvation identity and what shifts for us. That is a, a radical idea. And you're so right. It has so much application to what we are going through today. Our culture wants to condition us to see each other in race, class, and gender first. Like that's how we're going to interact and participate with each other. And that's, that's just not God's way when we're in his people. Yeah, that's, that's, you, you've, put, you've, you've stated it so well there. I, I, instead, of bring, being, instead of Christianity being an oppressive force, Christianity has this message that just as God, the Trinity, the, the triune God, it's, it's analogous to a human family. We've been adopted into the family of God. Yeah. Again, whether you're a fisherman, whether you're a slave, whether you're a Roman soldier, uh, whether you're, you're, you're black, whether you are European, whether you're a male or female, yeah, yeah. Uh, that message needs to get out. It definitely does. That's a message for today. Let's just move right into the third set of factors as we're talking about the rapid spread of Christianity. I think you call these religious factors. Yes. So maybe we can step through some of those and and what we're talking about here. Yes. Uh, Well, recognize that the Greco-Roman world was largely a polytheistic world. You had the you had first the Greek gods. You later have the Roman gods. Uh, you have the great building in Rome called the the Pantheon uh, for all the deities. Well, this idea that 
monotheism came along, that there was one God, and it and it led to a, a certain coherence to it. Uh, this was a single God, rather than a, uh, you know, many different types of deities. And monotheism kind of became, uh, maybe a word would be trendy. It, it was unique. It was, it was very different. And uh, so the idea that there is this one God, but even further with the Trinity, with the Trinity, you have, uh, you have unity and diversity. But you see, God can be love in himself because the Father loves the Son in the Spirit for all eternity. Who does Allah love in eternity before he created angels and human beings? In fact, who did Yahweh love in eternity? Because remember, traditional Jews hold a Unitarian view of God. So this idea of the triune God meant that God was like a family, and God could be love in himself. He didn't need to create. God creates to, to share his love and his forgiveness. Another feature that would be related to that, Krista, is, uh, you know, Christianity becomes a universal religion. I mean, to, to be a Jew, I mean, you have to be circumcised, you have to go through the dietary restrictions. Uh, there are a lot of things that set Jews apart from other people groups. But Christianity didn't adopt all of those things. You could come from any walk of life. You could be from any particular ethnic group uh, and become a Christian. And so there was a universalness to it uh, that, that attracted people. Uh, and if I could add one more element in this, you know, this idea that, that Christianity preached a message of salvation. I mean, with the Greco-Roman religions, you have to appease these deities, and, and they're not easy to appease. Uh, they may curse you. They may cause all kinds of problems for you. But this idea that there is a sovereign creator, and that sovereign creator took a human nature and became man, that, that the early Christians affirmed Jesus to be the theanthropos, to use the Greek language, theos, uh, the idea of God, anthropos, man, and that, and that Jesus's death is able to reconcile people's guilt, their shame, their sinfulness to God, and that God love, loves people. This was an enormously attractive message, uh, and, it, and it transformed the way, uh, the way people looked at these types of issues. And so uh, Christianity, even today, uh, stands very strong in terms of the idea that that God forgives us, that God has love for us, and that that uh, God came into the world. I mean, I think the two biggest objections that secular philosophers have today are the hiddenness of God and the problem of evil. But in the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, you really can't say he's hidden if he if he takes a human nature and comes into human history. And if he is, if he is suffered, then we have a God with wounds. We we have a God who knows what it's like to suffer. He can empathize with us. Again, talk about revolutionary. This was different than the Greco-Roman deities, and this was even more expansive than the teaching of traditional Judaism. 
Well, you said a lot there. I want to unpack a couple of really critical points so they don't blow by us too quickly. I mean, this this idea of Christianity being a universal religion, I think, you know, let's let's pause on that just for a second, because I think when Jesus gives the Great Commission in um, Matthew 28 and in, in Luke chapter or in Acts chapter one, and he tells the disciples to go out into into the nations. He's he's saying from the beginning that this is going to be a religion for Jews, that he has that covenant that he's making available for the Jews, but it's also now broadening and inviting Gentiles to come participate in that covenant relationship with the Father as well. And we see that even at Pentecost, like as quick as Acts chapter 2, there were representatives there from nations around the Roman Empire, they all receive the Holy Spirit. Yep. I mean, we see it right from the beginning. The church is wrestling, you know, in order to be a Christian, do I have to also become a Jew? Do I need to convert to Judaism, get circumcised, abide by the food laws, observe the Sabbath? Or is this, you know, what what is happening here? And that's the whole wrestling in the first half of the book of Acts. I think that is a very provocative point because it seems like from the beginning, Jesus is positioning Christianity to be something to go out to the nations and that it will be an invitation far beyond Jerusalem. I I think that that is a hugely important point for us to reflect on. Yeah, I mean, you've got you've got Christians in Europe, you've got Christians in Africa, you have uh, Christians in Asia. Uh, you think of the development of Christianity; it has had a huge influence in Europe, but it's also had a, a huge influence in in the uh, Eastern world. Um, and again, uh, as I mentioned, there are limitations in terms of thinking about the old covenant, but this new covenant opens up doors to people from all walks of life. And so Christians in the ancient world would, would have black skin, they would have light skin, uh, they would be Asian, they would be African, they'd be European. There is certainly that, that universal element, and that's the way we think about the church. The church is universal. It's, yeah. it's a whole. Yeah, and the other point that you made there, um, a couple minutes ago, I want to really highlight that is God's gracious plan of salvation, that that factored into the rapid spread of Christianity, because I think sometimes it becomes so familiar to us. We forget how, how radical it is. And, and we're living in a cultural moment right now where I think our culture is offering a different plan of salvation. It is inviting us to participate in a different moral code um, they use some of the same language that we have that they have co-opted, but they mean very different things by it. And they are offering a plan of, of salvation of sorts, of how to be a good moral person, how to reflect on the good, true, and the beautiful. But they're offering a very different pathway of how to do that. And I would argue that it is a system or a worldview that offers actually no end goal, no absolution of sin. Mm. And that you can't, 
ever get rid of your whiteness enough. You can't ever engage in enough acts of social justice to be justified, to to be clean. Um, and what Jesus offers and what I really hope historic Christians will will just fix their eyes on is God's gracious plan of salvation through Jesus that he is offering absolution for our sins, that we can never um, earn our way into a relationship with the Father, that that is something that is done through his son, Jesus, and it is final, and it is finished, and it is full, and that it completely covers every sin that we commit past, present, and future. I think we need to be gripped in our hearts once again about that gracious plan of salvation and really make that known because I think the salvation plan our culture is offering people is one of slavery and eventually people are going to realize like, I'm never going to get there. What is the alternative? So I don't know. That's just my reflection on that and seeing that principle and how it could potentially play out in our own time. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book comparing Jesus with Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, and Muhammad. I make the point, Krista, that it's only Jesus that performs an act that changes his followers' relationship in the next life before God. You know, what, what does Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad do? They might be able to give you uh, commands, but they don't change your your sinful state before God. They don't provide forgiveness. And so, yeah, re- remarkable changes that that brought great attention to the truth claims of Christianity. Very good. All right, we're, we're out of time, but I know we've got a couple of points left, so we're going to go through them really quick and refer people to your writing. Um, what other religious factors do we want to yeah. touch on here? Yeah, we, well, we certainly could talk about the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul is, the, I think, one of the most extraordinary people in the history of the world. He goes from being the greatest enemy of, of primitive Christianity to being its, its greatest advocate. Uh, I mean, we've, Christianity has been around 2,000 years. No one, has, no one even today has eclipsed Paul in terms of his missionary journeys, uh, author of 13 of the New Testament books. Um, he, he is, in my mind, still the greatest Christian apologist. So uh, it's remarkable that God would use a single person the way that he did. And, and of course, Paul's not one of the original 12, but I think Paul is the most important apostle, and his, his books are the most important in this context, explaining what the life, death, and resurrection means in light of the Old Testament. And I, I add one in my chapter, Krista, I, I make it a political point. I say that, you know, you have this emperor, Constantine, you know, his dates, his reign is 306 to 337, but he halts persecution. Um, and that allows the church to breathe. That allows the church to expand. There are m- more opportunities and whether he was motivated for his own uh, benefits or not, 
he calls a council together, the Council of Nicaea, that ultimately defends the deity of Jesus Christ. And so we early on, we talked about providence. We talked about sovereignty. God can reach the king. He can reach the heart of the emperor, just like he reaches our hearts. That's so powerful. Okay, before we say goodbye to Ken, I want to ask you, what resources could we recommend to viewers who want to dig deeper into the history of early Christianity? I always get that question. So um, if people want to know about this, more about this particular topic, we've been commending the chapter in your book, Christianity Cross-Examined. I know you have another book more related to church history of classic Christian thinkers. That's a good one. Maybe you can give us a couple more ideas of where people can look. Yes. Um, Rodney Stark is a historian at Baylor. He has a number of books about the history of Christianity, how Christianity transformed the world. Yeah, they're The Rise of Christianity. It's a remarkably good book. Um, if you're interested in how Christianity developed doctrinally, uh, the great Yale historian, Yuroslav Pelikan, he has a six-volume series uh, and, and certainly in my book, Classic Christian Thinkers, I list books that, that uh, represent, you know, influence people like Athanasius and uh, Irenaeus, Augustine, Aquinas. So there are lots of good sources there in that book. Very good. All right. Thank you so much, Ken, for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. And my pleasure. Um, would love to have you back again sometime to continue some more topics. So thank you. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. you. Merry Christmas, Ken. Take care. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And I also want to let people know really quickly as we're signing off tonight um, that I opened my uh, latest class. Um, It's going to be called God's person and word. And I opened the registration for it last night. So it's now up and you can register. And it's going to be the first in three class sequence that I'm going to do in 2022 on basic doctrine. So that's the first one. You're just going to go to centerforbiblicalunity.com slash classes. You're going to click on God's person and word. And so what we're going to be looking at in that class is Um, doctrine of the Bible and doctrine of God. So we're going to look at things like God's attributes. uh, What does it mean to believe in the Trinity and that kind of a thing. And um, so that's going to be the first class. The second class that I'm going to teach later in the year, I don't have a graphic for this, but it's going to be called uh, man's sin salvation. Well, we'll go through doctrine of humans um, doctrine of sin and doctrine of salvation. How do we get saved? And then the third class will be um, church and last things. So that'll be the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, the doctrine of the church. So that might be like church leadership and spiritual gifts. And then last things would be end times. So rapture and millennium and all that fun stuff. So it's going to be a sequence of three classes So the first of three, you can jump in on any of the three that you want, or you could do all three in the sequence. But the first one is starting January 10th, and the registrations are now open. I'm only accepting 35 students, and so it's going to be a fairly um, intimate class. 
but it's going to be a great way uh, to help ground people in basic doctrine. Because what I'm finding is that people want to be able to discern, um, you know, biblical beliefs, but they don't have a, have a framework for how to do it. So what they do is they make posts on Facebook and on social media and say like, well, what do you think about this book? What do you think about this book? And then they just get relegated to people's opinions about things. I want to roll that back a little bit and say, okay, first of all, we've got to get everybody grounded in the framework of Christian doctrine so that you have a lens and you can do that heavy lifting and you don't have to be so dependent on discernment ministries. And this will really help you in your discipleship of others, whether in your small group or your children or your teenagers or whoever, or your own discipleship. So go check out my new class. All the description is there when you click through. So you're once again, you're going to go to centerforbiblicalunity.com slash classes, and you'll just hit that register now button there and that will take you to all the details about the class thank you so much everyone we love you and good night and god bless be sure to follow theology mom on facebook and like comment and subscribe on youtube don't forget to catch krista next week for more theology fun on theology mom and all the things Thanks for listening.